0: Hello everyone and welcome to What's Wrong with the Podcast. Today we have the great pleasure of speaking with David Stalley. David is an Associate Professor in the Department of History at The Ohio State University, where he teaches courses in Digital History and Historical Methods. He holds courtesy appointments in the Departments of Design, where he has taught courses in Design History and Design Futures, and Educational Studies, where he has led the Forum on the University. He is the author of Historical Imagination, Alternative Universities, Speculative Design for Innovation in Higher Education, Brain, Mind, and Internet, Deep History and Future, Computers, Visualizations, and History, History and Future, Using Historical Thinking to Imagine the Future. He is an honorary faculty fellow in innovation at the Center for Higher Ed Leadership and Innovative Practice at Babe Path University and was recently named a fellow at the Center for Science and the Imagination at Arizona State University. He is host of the Voices of Excellence in the Arts and Sciences podcast and host of Creative Mornings Columbus.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to our podcast. Today, we have the great pleasure of speaking with David Staley. David is an associate professor in the Department of History at Ohio State University. And he's the author of this incredible book called alternative universities Speculative design for innovation in higher education.
2: David, welcome. Thank you, Benar. Thank you for inviting me.
1: So please tell us more about yourself and your background.
2: Oh, uh, so uh, I guess uh, I'm an historian who uh, doesn't like to stay in his lane. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So I I, have developed lots of interests uh, over the years, uh, uh, in addition to history. uh, But I think I I spend as much of my time thinking forward. Uh, And so in addition to being an historian, uh, I write a lot about the future uh, as well. Uh, I've been working on some projects. Uh, over the years, I've, I've been a practicing futurist for probably about twenty years or so, uh, and so I'm interested. Uh, I'm interested in lots of different uh, lots of different areas. I sometimes like to joke. I can't decide what I want to be when I grow up.
1: <laughs> I love that. I think uh, I think historians actually make perfect futurist because if we don't have understanding of our past how can we even forecast the future so I, I, I think you're in the I, best way
2: yes I couldn't agree more and and what I tell people is uh, historians are really good at understanding complex systems in a sense we study complex systems and I think the best yeah. way to understand the future is to is to understand how complex systems will behave
1: Yes, definitely. And we very often say that all architects and designers should have historians on their teams when they're working on projects. Because really, like, how do we have an in-depth understanding of the culture and the past to propose the right project, too? It's kind of... Be understanding the future too, right?
2: You you are preaching to the choir there. So (laughs) So I I, uh, actually have a courtesy appointment here at Ohio State in the design department. So in fact, I'll be uh, teaching a uh, class this fall in uh, design futures. And so trying to teach the next generation of designers uh, uh, how how to be good futurists.
1: Amazing. Is there any way people outside of the university can join in and listen in?
2: Well, let's see if we can figure that out
1: okay perfect we're announcing this officially on this podcast (laughs) we'll just we'll just hack into your like classes (laughs) but I I mean there are so many things we can talk about today and you have done amazing work in so many different topics too but for the sake of our one hour we're going to kind of focus the conversation in higher education Mm -hmm. and I guess my initial question would be what are some of the uh, issues or kind of like the reasons um, you saw in higher education that kind of led to led you to start speculating solutions.
2: Wow, that's um, so. So it's a it's a complex question. I don't know if you intended it as such. <laughs> but it's it's so. Uh, I guess uh, the the ideas for the book came from many sources, many many sort of uh, rivers or tributaries. Um, so I guess the first of these was about a decade or so ago. Uh, I was part of a, a team that was uh, putting together a business plan to start a new sort of online university that mm-hmm. we, we never got funding for, which is too bad. But the, the, the exercise uh, was really fascinating for me. And uh, it, it, it led me to start asking a question, if, if, if you were to start a university today from scratch, what would it look like? And I think that one of the things that uh, that I that I took away from that from that whole experience was that uh, we were well that, that that many institutions look like uh, every other institution, and what I mean by that is that there's an awful lot of there's a lot of copying that goes on in higher education, right. and such that in in many ways uh, many institutions, and I understand this is a generalization because. Just in the United States alone, there's something on the order of about 4000 institutions of higher learning and 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 then you add to that the number of institutions worldwide. But I think as a general phenomenon, there is a sense that 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 many of them converge toward the same sort of institution.
0: Yeah,
2: uh, and then they start to look alike. And one of the challenges that that brings about is that um, Uh, Higher education is quickly becoming a commoditized industry, meaning Mm. that there's very little differentiation between institutions, and that what you're really competing on ultimately is price, and that's true of any sort of commoditized industry. And so, one of the arguments I make in the book is that what uh, there there are lots of challenges facing higher education today, and I don't mean to minimize those, uh, but that. That, that a paramount problem may be is lack of differentiation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the book is as much a call for imagination, strategic imagination and thinking about what universities can be.
1: But that's like all, of, I mean, it's such a good point that now I'm even thinking about kind of like the accreditation system, right? That That's also meant to Like giving a stamp of a revolt to a department or an education system to be basically be more like the standard. So that's like one way of losing the entire differentiation. And I guess, um, you know, in developing countries, we see there's a lot of looking to West and what, you know, what's happening there. So that's also a different way of copying. Um, And I guess to your point too, when students uh, select universities now, it's either like, is it a well-known brand? So can I like use that name in the resume or they know a professor Um, or there is a, a program but it's still a department or like a program within a similar system that does not always exist in other schools, but it's still a program, right? So the curriculum setup and everything is very similar. So it's never about, the how I will learn, but it's more about like the branding and the details.
2: Well, I think you're you're, you're quite correct and I'm'm I'm, I absolutely agree that um, at, at root here we're talking about branding. Now those of us in higher education um, really don't like to talk about branding because that sounds too much like corporate speak and too much like 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 business. But uh, what I oftentimes tell my colleagues, is that universities, colleges and universities are in the reputation business. Hmm. Whether you whether you like it or not, so we are in the reputation business. And building a reputation is actually a really, really difficult, challenging thing to do. Uh, and uh, I think uh, that it, at root, some of the issues around um, The lack of differentiation has to do with a uh, sort of a common sort of branding, we have to be like so and so we have to be like this institution, whether you're talking about inside the United States, or indeed, as you're talking about people outside the United States copying or wanting to emulate uh, uh, Institutions institutions in this country, but at at its root is the is is a, a, a sort of a reputation economy. Right. And that's something that I think we we lose sight of in higher education.
1: And it's interesting how we also grow up to, and I don't, and this is probably going to change, right? Um, as you know, uh, well, I guess there are uh, many factors that contribute to it, and whether that is. Uh, you know, the next generation and the generations from uh, there and technology and even like the higher uh, life expectancy we have. uh, We start, there are many ways, like the general public might look at education differently, but we grew up uh, really buying into that reputation business, really. Like, I I don't think, I mean, maybe we decide, okay, I want to study this versus this. But we didn't necessarily question how we're going to get our education um, and, you know, like just buying into brands because we knew that may get us a job, right? Like there was not much in-depth thinking of like what we really want and how we really want to learn. Um, I, and we never even like thought of it, that this was awkward because we grew up in that system. So it's interesting that, you um, there, I guess, there was no motivation for the educa- higher education industry to change too because there was no demand.
2: We are, um, uh, and again, I'm speaking in in, in ge- uh, as a generalization here, but we are a very conservative institution, uh, uh, generally speaking. One of the root sort of philosophical questions I ask in my book is, "What is the university for? What's its purpose?" And it's a question that well, either we 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 ask in very sort of um, Simplistic terms, uh, or we sort of pass that off as well, everybody knows what a university is for. But I'm asking a more sort of fundamental, sort of existential sort of question what are universities for? And that question is one of the things that I think undergirds every one of the speculative designs I lay out in the book. Each represents a different purpose a different function, a different mission, whatever sort of term you want. And this is something that I've been saying uh, to to, uh, audiences, to all sorts of institutions. Uh, You should be asking yourself, what is our purpose? What is our function? Uh, And to what degree is that purpose and mission distinct? Uh, And to what degree does it make you sort of stand out from others? or in answering the question, are you really uh, uh, providing a service that every other institution is providing? And uh, you mentioned uh, uh, young people, younger generation. I think that one of the things, and this hasn't been entirely clear to me, frankly, Pinar, until you asked me this. I think that that this is a question, even if they're not stating it explicitly, this is a question that young people are asking. What is a university for? Right. And we in higher education, I think, need to uh, give that deeper thought and act upon that question much more so than we have.
1: Right, and you you do talk about a lot about like how, you know this like mass online courses became so popular and we thought that might change the way like we're learning and it didn't necessarily make that big impact, maybe like we thought that it would do like complete shift in the industry and the way we learn. But of course, and it takes generations, potentially, like the more generations are like, well, I can learn this online. And also, like we now have a whole generation that that like experience like two years of COVID, which like they already are like, yeah, I can do this remote and online. Like now there's actually like even more uh, like it's more familiar to them to be able to do that at a much younger age. So for higher education, it might even be more like, yeah, obviously I can do this remote. Um, So there is definitely, you know, um, maybe it took like more than it would, but there's definitely more uh, buy-in to just like, I can like learn a class online. Why do I need to go on campus and sit in front of a professor and listen to them? Um, So how much of this like urgency, like, do you think that Puts any urgency to a very conservative um, industry. Like, are are the, is there like general planning around this? Like, is there are there concerns of the ways that they, they had until now, and they really feel the need that they need to change or adapt? Or you still think like no, like we're good?
2: <laughs> uh, the answer is yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let let me, let me try to disentangle what I mean by this. So. Your observation, I think, is quite correct. Uh, that especially over the, the the COVID year and a half, now moving into you know close to two years of of, of COVID, uh, many students sort of discovered that yes, I am able to take classes uh, remotely. I am able to take classes uh, online. Um, the question and and, and so. Um, this has been this has been and and you alluded to the fact that i that i talk about this in my book this has been the the challenge the threat uh the expectation the prediction uh for higher education that it's inevitable that higher education is going to become an online enterprise uh like like so many other uh, uh uh industries media industries and higher education is a media industry in some ways Uh, That day has been coming and coming and predicted and predicted and uh, when MOOCs, the massive open online courses uh, uh, started to become popular almost a decade or so ago, the feeling was, well, this is the moment now because here's the moment now where uh, all these uh, uh, all of higher education be delivered online and that's certainly, it's certainly true. There's an awful lot of higher education. now was delivered online. But at the same time, the prediction was, and this would completely upend all the incumbents. And that most certainly has not been the case. The incumbents uh, are still in place. And that has to do with the the, the other side of this. So students have been telling us that, uh, sure, uh, I can take classes online, but I'm not certain I want to. Uh, and and I had said last year, I had said sort of uh, in, in in the midst of the of the pandemic and just before classes returned in the fall here in the United States, that I said we have to watch very carefully what students are actually saying, and what we may hear them say is, um, I'm not certain I like this, <laughs> or this isn't yeah. what I this isn't what I'm paying my money for, uh, and also kind of a a, a dissatisfaction. With, uh, with online learning. And I think if we've learned anything in, um, in, the, last, in the COVID year, especially about online education, is that uh, what has really worked, and, and now maybe I'm talking about my own personal experience teaching students, is that the kind of conversation that you and I are having right now over Zoom, online, yeah. uh, is I did a fair amount of that kind of teaching in the COVID year. And students like that sort of one-on-one sort of mentoring. I guess uh, we would call it sort of an Oxford tutorial. Yeah. Uh, and I wonder if, if, if online education is going to become the chief uh, conduit, the chief method. I wonder if the learning style is going to look more like an Oxford tutorial because one of the things that students are telling us is that the relationship, not the exchange of information, the relationship that they're developing with a professor is maybe more important to them.
1: Right, and with each other, right? And with each other. In in the end, like I think one thing that is not going to change, or maybe I'm really wrong about this, but I don't think we will change that we're social beings. Um, and hence the reason, yes, like work from home is also very efficient. and we all sectors saw it's doable in addition to tech industry who has been doing it more often. But we still miss going into the office or maybe having an ideation session or a strategy meeting like or a workshop with colleagues. Mm-hmm. And um, like I can't even imagine as someone who had the campus experience like, not studying from a library, not hanging out with my friends, um, not talking to a professor at all and everything just being in the computer. So I think there is something to having that blend of online and offline, just because like, as you said, um, it does create access, right? And abundance of information when we also think have things online. Um, And I'm sure uh, in, in access, I'm also meaning physical access, like you Know there are so many uh, people with disabilities that we spoke with that were really happy about things being okay, uh, being remote because there was a time where they weren't even admitted to universities because um, they asked if they can take classes online because the campuses are not accessible. So there are definitely benefits to it, too. Um, but one like thing that does not change over time as technology progresses or when COVID happens we're still our social animals and we kind of need that interaction and i totally understand um you know especially with like prestigious schools where people are also there for not only like um you know professor interaction but like network building like there's Mm -hmm. so much more that goes into that and um you can't deliver that with online um un- unless we have like metaverses and we're meeting in digital space i don't know like things can really change
2: well and yes and, well that's a whole other uh that's a whole other uh category isn't it if the yeah. nature of the online interaction the online experience changes yeah. uh that that could in fact be a game changer but you, you've hit upon something i think quite important and again something that we've learned through the covid uh year the covid two years is that so we talked about the experience of a classroom for instance the face-to-face experience but i think prior to COVID, i think we 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 largely and especially those that were advocating for online learning we talked about that as 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 sort of a frill or an add-on or something that was really not um, essential Mm. to teaching and learning and if the covid year has taught us anything that you know not just is that it's not just that a face-to-face experience is a pleasant thing it might actually be critical to the teaching and learning Mm. um and that's i think something else that we are going to discover uh with this this mass movement to online because of covid and now we're sort of slowly once again getting back into, into our classes I make a distinction in my book between uh, an educational spe- experience that is transactional versus one that's transformational. Mm. And I am old enough that uh, when I went to university, uh, I assumed that it was that I that it was going to be a transformational experience, that I was going to be a different person hmm. at the other end. Whether that was uh, you know someone who was more knowledgeable or wiser or, or, or more mature or more cosmopolitan. And, you know, whatever, whatever that was, I assumed that I was going to be transformed by mm-hmm. education. And I think that too much uh, higher education today is transactional, meaning um, I give you money, you give me skills or you certify my skills. Right. Uh, and so it, it really is sort of transactional in that sense. And if what you're seeking in higher education is a transactional experience, then online works just fine. There are, well, I'm hard pressed to think of any examples, I'm sure they're out there and I'm sure we're going to get all sorts of complaints when I say this, but uh, where is the transformational online experience Hmm. and who is sort of marketing that (laughs) as, as, as central to their online experience? uh i'm sure we will we will hear that but i think that uh uh and again one of the things that i said in my book and one of one of my uh, uh aspirations i think with each one of my speculative designs was that each one of those designs was uh intended to be transformational rather than transactional
0: yes
1: and let's talk about those designs shall we i real so you you have 10 10- uh, alternate universities here, which some, and I'm sure I'll ask more questions around the ones that were really like, Oh, I wish I had that one <laughs> Like, <you>
2: know, <laughs>
1: in reading, but do you want to give like a quick definition to all or like a few, I, I think, you know, maybe we can like, or, or around the themes that why you propose them.
2: So, uh, I, the subtitle of the book is speculative designs. And I describe these as speculative designs, and that has to do with, um, my intention. When I first started writing the book, Mm. which was to propose an alternative uh, or an alternate university um, as a way to, in in the way that we do speculative design, right, which is meant to be discursive, which is meant to uh, provoke, which is meant to uh, get us to think about our current systems and structures. Uh, even if the speculative design is never intended to be built, I think I, I went into uh, this this exercise with that intention in mind. And then, as I wrote the book, and as i as I dove more into these, I realized that you know more and more of these could probably be actualized.
1: That's actually how I was reading. Oh, these are yeah. still so doable.
2: they They are doable. and and you know i would I would start to get readers like yourself say, "Oh, I think I'd like to attend such and such a university." And so I kept speculative design in the title, even though I think that these designs are probably more actualizable than I, I, I probably imagined. So um, that, that, that sort of describes the, the, the impetus. You'd like me to yeah. just start talking about uh, yes, some please. of these in turn? Yeah. So let me give you an example of, of one. Um, so uh, um, it's called Nomad University. And it's the idea that the university has no physical location or hmm. a single physical location. And so uh, a viewer uh, to, uh, to this interview might say, well, you're just talking about online experience. And in fact, what I'm talking about is moving the location of the university around the globe. And so, I comp- uh, so uh, it's based on a model of uh, a university experience as a series of gap years. <laughs> or say six to eight gap year experiences in the way that, that, that young people before they attend university will take a year off and have some sort of experience. Usually, not in every case, but usually what that means is sort of going off somewhere in the world and engaging in some sort of meaningful project. And there's been all sorts of interesting research to suggest that those students come to university better prepared, more mature, their uh, outcomes uh, tend to be better, and so I, I I I took from that. Well, what if what if instead of being a sort of a pre-university experience, what if it became the university experience? Yeah. and you go around the world, say every six months or so, you would go and experience different kinds of well activities, experiences. You you build um, you build uh, uh, irrigation systems in sub-Saharan Africa. You uh, engage in community policing. Uh, in, uh, in Baltimore. You go to uh, uh, Oxford, Mississippi and read Faulkner uh, for, uh, for six months. Uh, but the idea is to create uh, or, or is to um, uh, produce, again, a sort of a transformational experience. A student is not just simply learning skills, but is also traveling the world and becoming or at least giving the opportunity to be cosmopolitan. And so there's not a, a lab, there's not there's not a university building, or the university building is well, wherever you happen to be in the world. That's
1: so fascinating. And I'm what I'm thinking about is like, and this is not even a conversation. It depends from country to country. I think in United States, you know, I do come across people who take a year off and then go to college. But um, for example, in like, I grew grew up in Turkey and there, if you're a good student, like you, you're like treated like a racehorse, right? Like, okay, now you go into college and what is your uh, graduate experience after this? Like, there's no break. You like get all the degrees that you can and then you get like, aim for the best job. Like that's kind of, and maybe it comes from like a survival instinct when you're in a developing country and there's more concern about the future than you're, let me get everything today. Maybe that's uh, like kind of the baggage we have like going into this, but I often, and be as someone who went into graduate right after undergraduate, what I saw was like, after um, I started working after graduate school, I was like, I really did not understand why I was taking all these classes. Like I had no idea. And maybe like four years into my like work life, I would be like, oh, this is why I took that class, you know? And there's like such later appreciation to what I was learning at the time. And what you're describing to me is like almost, you not only acquire the skills as you go but you also found your interests, what you want to learn better maybe the nomad university has like elective classes that are so much more flexible because of that and such a more um purposeful and a self-curated education in that sense too because you just know yourself better and therefore you know what you want to learn better um, and also just like, you know, world exposure is like one of the biggest educations a person can get anyway. Absolutely. So. Yes.
2: Uh, and in, in phrasing it the way you have, Pinar, uh, one, of the, one of the themes that sort of runs throughout uh, 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 many of the alternative universities is that uh, I play around with uh, graduation requirements and uh, especially uh, subjects and disciplines. So in the Nomad University, for instance, uh, a student doesn't major in, uh, in a discipline. Yeah. Uh, in, uh, you, you develop a set of skills going around the world. And so you, 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 have, you develop, I, I guess, a sort of a portfolio of skills. There's another uh, 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 university model that I call the new liberal arts college. Uh, yeah. And uh, uh, rather than uh, based on subjects, history, philosophy, uh, uh, English, or languages, um, uh, the, the disciplines are based around skills, in fact, seven skills, okay. including things like leadership and uh, communications. In fact, what I did is I looked at uh, surveys from employers that say, here are the skills that we want to see from employees. Huh. And so what, we, what if we built a, a, a school, a college, around those skills? Uh, instead of what we do now, which is to say, well, you major in philosophy and you learn communication. Yeah. Uh, so what if we reoriented the university around uh, not, not disciplines and subjects, but skills? Uh, there's another one. In fact, one of my favorite uh, uh, universities in the book um, is uh, what I call Polymath University. Oh, yes. You like this one?
1: <laughs> yes, one of my favorites, too. Yeah.
2: So well, for, uh, for the viewers, let me just uh, quickly describe it. So uh, at this university, so the, the, the disciplines, the traditional disciplines are, are there and, and established, uh, any student uh, as a condition of graduation, triple majors in three very different disciplines. In fact, I've got a, a scheme in the, in the book. Uh, but you essentially, so um, uh, instead of majoring, say, in history and English philosophy, uh, or uh, business finance and accounting. A student would uh, major in philosophy, uh, finance and dance.
1: Uh, I love it so much. Maybe because also my like personal, uh, like always maybe like regret, like in, again, like going back to countries sort of like, if you are you know a good student, you're expected to study like a certain programs in right. school right and the perception is oh if you study any of other of these you won't get a job so like i studied industrial engineering but always had huge interest in psychology and so when i was reading this i was like oh my god i could have still <laughs> done engineering and music because i also just you know is, uh, love everything about music and then psychology like i could have mixed this up like so well so i definitely yeah that's why it was one of my personal favorites
2: and uh, I'm, I'm absolutely delighted uh, and very <laughs> pleased to hear that, uh, but, you know, I, I think you've hit upon another important point in this is the sort of the expectations for society and I, I want to yeah. say society rather than rather than say the workforce or the True. workplace, True. Uh, although that's a, a big part of it, there are expectations about what a graduate needs to have and I think that, uh, and I don't know how much I address this in the book, uh, I think for any one of these uh, universities to be uh, uh, created, instituted, started up tomorrow, um, we would also have to sort of alter the uh, the demand side of the equation. Yeah. yeah. So, and, so take Polymath University. So one could argue that, well, you're not really specialized in anything, and so maybe that doesn't make you employable, to which I would say I would want to go to employer to employers and say, wouldn't you want to hire a person with this sort of cognitive flexibility. That this is a desirable person to have in your organization, not because they fit in within some predetermined silo. But that they have this sort of breadth of knowledge and understanding that that's the sort of person you should be looking for for your company, and so I think it's as much changing attitudes about society. That's an important part of making each one of these, uh, uh, each one of these speculative designs actionable.
1: So true, because how it was like branded then, maybe a little less now, as there's definitely, again, what we were talking about, generational change and more interest in the portfolio than like the GRE scores or whatnot. But um, like it was considered to be like, oh, you're jack of all trades, like master of none, right? Yes. So, which I t- also to that, like, who really is master of anything when we're graduating from college these days, right? Like, we don't even know why we're taking the classes. So I think, yeah, definitely. And I do want to uh, highlight a few more that I um, really loved. And uh, when it like sort of go into more, a little bit more in depth with that first, like, let's talk about advanced play, like how genius of an idea that is. can you you elaborate on that more
2: Uh, so um, what if we created a university whose ultimate purpose wasn't knowledge whether the acquisition or even the creation of knowledge uh, but a play as the highest as its highest calling as its highest goal and uh, and so uh, the university is a kind of playground Uh, and it, I suppose uh, whether or not you, uh, you like this idea, and Pinar, you clearly do, <laughs> has to do with your attitude toward play. I think in too much of American society, at least, I, I can't speak necessarily for other cultures, but I think in American society, we tend to denigrate play, mm-hmm. um, either as a childish or something that children engage in, but not serious people uh, don't, yeah. don't engage in play. And frankly, maybe not even children as much anymore. There's all sorts of, uh, of, of unfortunate research that suggests that the amount of time that the that, 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 that children engage in sort of unstructured play, which is very different from, um, you know, after you're done with school, go to violin lessons and then here's soccer practice. And then there's dance practice, which is that, that's different from play. Uh, uh, And so the amount of time given over to play actually seems to be uh, getting smaller and smaller, at least among American uh, American children. Um, This would be an institution whose purpose is to allow people to engage in play, Uh, which, and there are all sorts of sort of definitions, but uh, oftentimes play involves sort of appropriation, uh, mm-hmm. And 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 uh, uh, divergent uses for objects. It means pretend. Uh, it means um, uh, it means experimentation. It and it also implies sort of engaging in some activity uh, just for the joy of it and not because it fulfills some sort of function. Yeah. So you'll sometimes hear scientists and others talk about exper- the experiments they might run as a kind of play. Those of us who are designers, I think, I think we play rather a lot. We play with a material. Again, there's not there's not an outcome in mind. We just, you know, we see something and we we want to engage it in some way. Um, and uh, this would be this would be a very very radical institution if we were if we were to start it today. Not just simply because of the associations we have about play, but that it would be very difficult to manage. Yeah. Play is not something that gives itself over to sort of bureaucratic management, because right now in universities, we want to know outcomes. What are the outcomes, uh, the learning objectives of such a class and play? I think uh, unstructured play of the kind we've been describing does not lend itself to that kind of quantification and and metrics. Yeah. Um, and so in some ways it would be the most radical of my designs, I think, that I that I proposed here. <laughs>
1: Radical, but at the same time, I think it's one of the uh, one of one of the examples where it's easier to maybe uh, create as an intervention or hack into existing universities so like to your point and as designers definitely like so much of the design process is very unstructured. Like I, with my industrial engineering and finance background, I tried to structure the design team all the time and I never accomplished it. You know, it seems very messy. People might look like they're not working, but they're actually thinking, uh, they're playing with something and you know, like it's, it's chaotic. And from that, then you achieve a great outcome. Um, and I think, you know, what we call like the maker labs, Yes. are today are kind of the uh, adult version of mm-hmm. sort of the playground right just with more technological widgets and whatnot but that uh the university of advanced play gave me the idea of like well how can a your lab be more of a playground actually mm-hmm. uh and there there are what is interesting to me too was um you know this is not an uncommon conversation in early childhood development right like there are so many people like waldorf and montessori that sort of talked about the importance of play and learning so what made us think suddenly when we were 18 or 20 years old and given that like expected life longevity is like 100 plus now what made us think that that was okay for like the first 6 years of our lives and when you're 20 oh no like we don't learn by play so where did that gap happen? So it made me think of like a few things of oh like how can this actually be a design intervention today? But also, when did we disconnect? Like when did we think play is not okay? Um, and I don't know if you have like any like hypotheses around this, but I'm sure what, you do. Being well, it would be a context.
2: hypothesis. I don't know if I could <laughs> if I could prove it, but I think that one cause, not the only cause, might be uh, uh, disciplining knowledge. Mm. Uh, and and you know the, the idea of discipline, I guess, uh, we, you know, we call something a discipline, or in uh, in gymnastics or figure skating, we talk about disciplines. Yeah. Um. And and what that means is sort of putting uh, uh uh restrictions, putting restraints around certain kinds of behavior. Yeah. Uh. And I think that that might in part explain uh why it just doesn't occur to us in higher education that, uh, that, 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 that we should be engaged in play. And, hmm. and as you say, Pinar, it's something, well, you know, sure that's fine for elementary school children, <laughs> but yeah. we're engaged in serious work here and, and play is not serious. And I think hmm. that that maybe is another sort of large, large um, uh, causal of uh, reason here is that uh, we assume that play is not something that serious people uh, engage in that attitude. I know is changing. There's a serious play movement uh, yeah. that's been that's that's been going on for a, for a few decades now. Uh, the Lego people have been very good, I think, at uh, not just simply selling those wonderful blocks, and they are wonderful, but also providing uh, uh, opportunities uh, for organizations to play yeah uh and i talk in the book as, as as what lego are doing is sort of maybe emblematic of what an institute for advanced play might mm. look like mm.
1: that's that's so amazing another one i really want to talk about because i thought it was actually very feasible to do today and i would love to get your thoughts on that our micro colleges another one that i really want to talk about uh because i thought it was actually very doable today um our micro colleges and I would love to get your thoughts around it further. And so why not, like maybe let's give a definition of what microcolleges are, and then we can discuss further.
2: Uh, well, so uh, you're correct to characterize them as microcolleges, plural, because uh, there's more than one. In fact, there's probably thousands of them. So a micro is, is defined as one faculty and 20 students. And that's the college. not a class, it is a college, uh, which sounds uh, I, I'm, I'm sure there'll be some viewers that will say well that's that that, that sounds ridiculous. Uh, but in fact, there is a college uh, in existence today in the United States that uh, that looks something like that. It's called Deep Springs College in uh, in mm-hmm. California in the Sierra Nevada mountain range of California. Uh, and so the idea here, and, and I can talk about sort of how you would sort of logistically make that work, mm. but the idea in some ways is a very ancient one uh, of a single, a, a single a teacher or, um, or uh, mentor working with a small number of students. The uh, system of, of gurus in uh, India before the arrival of the British. Uh, it would have been very common for a school to have been just one teacher and about two dozen or so pupils, and so in some ways the idea of a micro college is is a very ancient one, a very old one, and I also think one uh, that has a lot of appeal. Uh, and I write, and 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 I'm not I'm not dismissing large universities. I teach at a large university. <laughs> But it's based on the idea that uh, that there's something about uh, a, a smaller scale that is educationally and pedagogically maybe more effective than a large-scale university. Uh, one of the more proximate ideas that, that 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 got me to think about a micro college is the so-called micro school movement that we're seeing in K twelve learning, mm. and those those micro schools are actually quite bigger than what i am imagining for a micro college but we're talking about schools on the order of about 150 pupils Uh, and some of this is based on the the so-called dunbar number robin dunbar's number that the number of of really effective relationships that any one person can have is probably no more than 150. Hmm. Uh, and so uh, that's that's where some of the uh, the creators of micro schools are getting that idea so um um and again uh, I, I mentioned the idea of an oxford tutorial early on in this interview in some ways the uh, a micro college would be based on on that the kind of the scale and intimacy of an oxford tutorial as a way of thinking about the organization of a college
1: yeah yeah and the reason why i thought like in so many ways this is also doable today is well first of all this is kind of like how we start out our education, right? Like I remember until maybe like third grade, we had like one teacher and we were learning everything through that teacher. And also that teacher might bring in other teachers for specific classes, um, but you are actually cultivating a relationship with only one person. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, I, like growing up, like the classes I took were like, we were always from like 15 to 20 students in one class. And only when I got to college, suddenly it was 60 plus, which is still considered small. I mean, there are like massive auditoriums with hundreds of students. And like the bigger the classroom gets, the more you disengage from what you're there's just a lot happening and it's like almost like watching a concert like since there's like no (laughs) no interaction right like you're just like the taker of what's going on if you can keep your attention for like three four plus hours that happen in in like classes uh, uh in colleges or graduate schools and so to me micro colleges were like first of all i could sort of like visualize how that might look like like i imagined a campus to be Um, not one college but several colleges maybe that could also benefit from each other, right? So you could actually maybe uh, like for a day, like swap professors on like a topic or if uh, the students at one college would really wanna learn about something, you can actually go to your neighbor and ask if they have anything on that, right? Like I imagine like a city of colleges almost that kind of benefit from each other, but by by being also independent from each other, students who elect those colleges sort of like curate their own curriculum, which sort of ties into all the like student-based learning uh, theories that are getting more popular, I guess, these days, but not necessarily in higher education really, but earlier education.
2: So one of, the, uh, one of the teaching methods of a micro-college would be peer, peer-to-peer learning. Uh, but in, in describing your vision there, Pinar, in some ways, what we're talking about looks very much like uh, uh, the Oxbridge universities, which are a collection of constituent colleges. I'm talking about colleges that would be much smaller than one yeah. of either Oxford or, Oxford or Cambridge. The other thing that I suggest in the book is that a micro-college could be located anywhere. Uh, and so I'm imagining, for instance, a micro college at an architecture firm or a design studio or a micro college at an art museum uh, or a micro college on a farm. Uh, in other words, the setting uh, could well it, we'd be limited only by our imagination. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, in a city, especially uh, this is why I say that it would have to be uh, many micro colleges, plural uh, micro colleges. In a city of, of of any you know of any size, I would expect to see hundreds of micro colleges yeah. dotted throughout the landscape.
1: Oh, it's so fascinating! It just inspires us now. Like if we start a sour university, we're gonna give the give the credit to you, <laughs> and I, it will start in our firm uh, as you suggested. Um, so, I mean, this is all very fascinating. I think I can talk about, you know, all your speculations, uh, for a day, but, um, we do need to slowly wrap up. So I do recommend everyone, um, getting this book and reading it. And before we wrap up, I do want to ask, um, ask someone who is putting forward speculative ideas, uh, and designs out there. Um, anybody who wants to kind of change the system there within or make progress or push boundaries, um, either being inspired by your designs or um, in another discipline or industry, Uh, what would be your advice to them?
2: Um, To uh, practice the responsibility of imagination. I love that. So, uh, and, uh, and to be to be clear about that, I think that, uh, that, 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 any, anyone who is contemplating the future, anyone who's thinking about uh, making positive change uh, today, maybe one of our most important attributes as humans is our imagination. And I would urge every, anyone who's watching this to take that responsibility very seriously
1: i love that so much i wish somebody also told me that like maybe 10 years ago (laughs) but thank you so much david this is so fascinating any news or updates or other upcoming books that we should be aware about that you also want to share with the audience
2: i'm uh working on a book right now with a co-author uh that's uh tentatively titled a college in any town and it's an argument for uh why uh any town of any size needs a college or university, uh, especially if they want to connect to the knowledge economy. Well, any, anything
1: that, I guess like a quick uh, thing that comes into your mind, what can we do with the spaces?
2: Uh, I did a series of presentations here earlier this year with uh, an architect with uh, IBI Group, uh, she's actually located in toronto and that was the subject of our presentations it was taking some of my speculative design ideas and then thinking through what does that mean sort of spatially how do we make how do we give spatial form to what are uh, conceptual uh designs uh yeah. and so it's uh uh it's that's that's the conversation we can have the way in which uh, we could be designing spaces to induce each one of these speculative designs
1: yeah perfect amazing and i think it ties into so much on everything being local and like circular economy and whatnot so we will very much look forward to that thank you so much david uh this was such a treat um thank you so much for joining us today
2: thank you pinar
0: and that is this week's episode of What's Wrong With the Podcast. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other podcasting platform. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel. Links can be found in the episode description, and you can also find them on our website, with.xyz. If you found value in the show, we would appreciate if you could rate us and leave a review, or you can simply tell your friends about us. For more details on our guests, follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Don't forget to join us next week. Thank you for listening.